released on Sunday, May 4th, 2014, in St. Louis, Missouri, and all over the world, this Agile Life, episode 47, Be Controversial. Our exclusive sponsor tonight is CodeShip. CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple. Try CodeShip for free. Setup only takes three minutes at CodeShip.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, Amos King. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Craig Buchek. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today, Craig? Doing pretty good. And my favorite host of all time, Tice. Hi, Amos. I noticed you rolled your eyes before you even had me say your name. You knew exactly who I was talking about. Yes, and because I want to ask you what you are trying to improve today. My ability to record a podcast without John. Yes, and in the spirit of Kaizen, we've already identified the improvement that we have a critical point of failure in this Agile life where we need to replicate our recording process so anyone can record in the cloud. That would be awesome. Can we automate it? <laughs> I think so, and we've got some... I'm working on the documentation for it. All right, we'll document it, then we'll automate it. Maybe we'll write some tests, too. All right, can everybody shut up so that we can introduce the last host here today? And that's the most important guy ever on this podcast, because he started out as our original audio engineer and still was unable to record this tonight. Lee, welcome, Lee. Hey, actually, I was just doing the leading thing where I have to let you guys figure it out, see? Or I was totally unable. I'm whatever. A little trial by fire for us, is that what you're saying? So as we talked about in a prior episode, Lee embodies servant leadership, and he wanted to ensure he did not preclude our learning opportunities by taking the opportunity to fail away from us. Tice, you have this tendency to be able to take these really, like, things that could be very concise sentences and adding a bunch of big words to them and stretching them out so that they work really well in a C-level executive meeting. Wow. He likes to add enterprise architecture to everything. <laughs> <laughs> Architecture is the secret sauce for success. All right. Well, today I'm actually going to let Craig introduce the topic because he was at RailsConf recently in Chicago where uh, a little controversy seemed to start up. So let's hear about it, Craig. All right. So David Hanemeyer Henson is the creator of Rails, and that was about 10 years ago. And pretty much every year, he gives a keynote at RailsConf. I believe this was the eighth Rails conference. I believe they started in 2006. Actually, I guess I would make this the ninth. Anyway, um, he gave a keynote that kicked off RailsConf on last Tuesday, 22nd. And uh, I took notes, actually. He talked about how he started as being a developer late. He had a Commodore 64, but he didn't do any computer programming until he was like late in high school, I think, or maybe even in college. He talked about how development is like pseudoscience, not like a science, because like diets and, you know, there's fads and people like to sell you stuff and tell you that it's a silver bullet. So that part was kind of good. I mean, I think, you know, people do try to sell you stuff that's not a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. We've known that since 60s or 70s. But the controversial thing he said was that TDD is the biggest fad diet in our industry. And he went on for several minutes on that. It was probably, in fact, I think he had had a slide that said TLDR, 
TDD rarely has value. He did say testing has value, especially regression testing, but TDD rarely has value. He said things like it's not a bad thing to test models, including the database. He referenced James Copeline's article on unit testing, and now it's not that useful. So now we've got two, air quote, experts telling us that TDD isn't very helpful or unit testing isn't very helpful. I'm curious if he's got unit testing and TDD mixed up in his head, maybe. I'm not sure what the problem is here, but... Or is this another fad diet that he's trying to sell? Maybe. So the good thing was that pretty much every other speaker after him made fun of him for this and (laughs) said, you know, hey, we're going to use science here, you know, and some people actually did, you know, measurements and metrics of code and all the other speakers pretty much made fun of him and said TDD was useful. The ending keynote was a guy named Aaron Patterson, and he said that his eye muscles got quite a workout rolling his eyes during the, the presentation. So there was a big backlash, basically, against these things. But I'm scared that beginners are going to listen to him and not give TDD a try or not spend enough time to learn how to do it right. And they're going to be losing a powerful tool. So how do you guys each feel about this? We kind of heard how Craig feels about it, but Jason, how do, what comes to your mind whenever you're hearing this? Well, I kind of side with Craig in the sense that, you know, I see TDD as a risk prevention practice. The classic discipline of saying that, you know, if you put off writing the test, you create the opportunity to release the software without knowing what it does. And I struggle to see why anyone would take issue with that. And even the other one that we've talked a lot about here, which is metrics, is saying that if you have the discipline of writing a test first, it sets a team up for success because you're going to test everything. And it doesn't create, oh, we let the code base get ahead of the test coverage, and, well, we're getting behind, we're getting behind, and we all know how that goes. You never catch up. So I wasn't at RailsConf, as Craig was, but it seems strange that someone who actually you know, built a framework that has testing so integral to its operations would push back against using it for a great purpose where you could leverage that framework to write quality software. I do need to mention that uh, we do have in the show notes a link to a blog article that he wrote the day after, and we have the raw video feed of the presentation itself. So does he give any information, Craig, in that blog article? Because I haven't had a chance to read it. Does he give any other justification for this other than just some vague feelings? He does actually say to do testing, just not test first. And not TDD, which I'm not sure if he really means unit testing. He says testing has value, especially regression testing, but TDD rarely has value. And then he says in the blog article that he thinks we should do system testing, which he doesn't want to call it acceptance testing because of, I don't know, because he doesn't like there being written their acceptance criteria. I mean, system testing is kind of what we talked about last week with Llewellyn, where we discussed his approval testing frameworks, which are... Take a big snapshot of what it actually does to make sure that it keeps doing it later. Yeah, so Um, he's okay with that. Well, the other one he called out in the blog post, though, that I want to ask Craig about is he mentioned that he has seen multiple instances where test-driven development has caused poor architecture. And recently, I've heard lots of people say the exact opposite. So did he have any examples he went into? He only had one real example, and it was that basically... He had good unit test coverage, and there was some bug, and it's because he didn't have an integration test to cover it. And I'm like, well, then write your integration test. It It sounds to me like you didn't have enough tests. Right, right, exactly. So I don't know what's going on. He's actually proposing, like, to use Cucumber, which a lot of us in the Rails community already are. So 
I think he does seem to understand that it is about design, but he doesn't really seem to have taken that to heart. I'll say that to do design, I think you actually have to have real unit tests for you to build design, where you mock out a lot of things and go through the pain of having to mock things that you call, because that forces you to try to eliminate that pain and builds in the design. But a lot of like the testing that's built into Rails and the testing that he says is good testing is integration-level testing. You test at, the, at one level, and then you go up a level and include that next level down. Yeah, I think part of it is he uses test unit, which is not the best testing framework, and he's never really given the BDD frameworks, RSpec, a try. So I think part of it is using a lesser tool. He also says, my code written without TD looks better. And I've had this argument with him before. It looks better. Well, what does that mean? You've internalized that, but you need to express that to other people, what it means to look better. And then the next question is, well, why? Why does it look better? Is there something that TDD is not giving you? Or why would TDD even, why can't you get the same thing with TDD as you can without? You should be able to add things with TDD, not subtract. I think there's also a possibility that uh, a lot of people that try to do TDD and then leave out that, you know, you have the red-green refactor cycle. And if people put off that refactor piece of that cycle for multiple iterations of it and then just come back and try to refactor in some big way and they don't do the little stuff all the way through, then I can see where you might end up with bad design. But that, to me, is not a failing of TDD. It's a failing of self-discipline. That's my guess, too, that he's not doing a good job of refactoring, maybe. I think it would be interesting if at some point we could actually get DHH on here to discuss this with him, because I hear a lot of questions about like how he works and things like that that we're probably not going to get. And I can say that for myself, I probably would not have done TDD as well as I have without Rails and Ruby coming with testing, because I did it in Java a little bit. And also, the people around me helping to try to build and strengthen my testing skills. If I hadn't had those people, I could have been in a bad situation too. And so was he ever surrounded by those people all the time? Well, I think he was because the Ruby community that you know he was a part of before I was included Dave Thomas. And when Dave Thomas was on a few weeks ago, I asked him, you know, how come Ruby has such agile, how, how come we're so much more agile than seemingly the rest of the programming community? And it's because it was kind of the same people involved. So I know he kind of was involved in that stuff. And that's the same reason why I got interested in agile because Ruby encourages it. I think part of it is, I don't know if, there might be a little bit of him just trying to be controversial. He had good points in there. He said things like dependency and injection is you know, not that useful sometimes, especially in Ruby, which actually happens to be the case in Ruby more than other languages. And in Ruby, it doesn't feel like it's even a big deal when you do it. It doesn't even seem worthy of a name. So one of the points he had was Kent Beck says, test as little as possible to reach a given level of confidence. I think that's good advice. But the problem is that we usually want a fairly decent level of confidence that our code is going to work. And I think he's sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that sometimes, you know, our practices aren't the best and we can improve on them. But I don't think we throw them out. I think we see where the problem is and try to address it. So one of the questions that I'll throw out there, and actually the game I propose we could play, and that's what I call the question game. It's where we could all, if we have this hypothetical where DHH comes on a future episode of This Agile Life, what's a question we would ask him to get things started? And the one I throw out there is one of the things where I value TDD, it's the confidence you have to trust the changes you make to a production system. And to be fair, you know, 
Ruby on Rails has been used to make some very large production systems, many of which are supported by 37 Signals. So if he doesn't believe in TDD, how do they have confidence to run their systems if you're not writing tests? I mean, well, how well, do they... He didn't say don't write tests. He said don't write tests first. Well, but he's going against... So, so that... did he... Wait, wait. I have to stop there. Did he say don't write tests first or he doesn't think it's super important to write tests first? He says TDD rarely has value. He says testing has value, especially regression testing, but TDD rarely has value. It rarely does, but sometimes does. So that means to me, do it. <laughs> no, I mean, because if, you, if 10% of the time it improves my code, the rest of the time is it destroying my code? Well, it's taking time, most likely. But if you're writing tests anyway, I'm not sure that's true well, either. But to be the devil's advocate in, in DHH's defense, I mean, there are people out there that are very methodical at how they code, and they write code that's pretty darn good without having tests first. I mean, they do exist. I mean, as a coach, I like the idea of. TDD, because it's kind of, it catches everyone. So in the event you're not one of those gifted people, which I'll share I'm not, uh, it's a nice reinforcement, so it kind of levels the playing field. So I think a lot of those people that you would call gifted that write code that has good design and is very methodical and well thought out, a lot of those people, if you look back into their past, they did things like TDD for long periods of time. And so they write code that naturally looks like that because they're already in the habit of it. I think there's more to it than that, though, because I think that TDD is not about just the person writing the code. It's also about anybody else that might ever come across that code in the lifetime that that code is running. And that is rarely the people that originally wrote the code. So it serves as documentation as well. So there's more to it than just the people writing the code the first time. I would say more than documentation. I would say sort of a specification. It's a specification written as you go. You know, we don't have this big design up front, but we still would like to have a specification so that when we look at some code, we can figure out what it's supposed to be doing instead of trying to figure out what it is doing. I've heard people say that if you had the test, you could rewrite the code, but if you have the code, you can't rewrite the test because you don't know what it was supposed to do. But to go back to what Amos brought up, you know, and then where, you know, maybe we're putting the car in front of the horse here because he never said don't test, to be completely fair. He said test, and again, some teams... They manage to test without using TDD effectively. They tend to be more rare, but maybe he's in an environment where he can do that. Well, you also don't okay. know if, if you miss something. If you're not right. doing TDD, you might miss something. I agree, never Lee. I agree, Lee, but it's... For some reason, internally, as playing John's position tonight, I don't feel like I can... I'm as fired up because this topic really fires me up. And now it's starting... Okay, now I'm pissed. All right. Uh, <laughs> Right now, I am working on a project that wasn't done with TDD, and you can tell. It's painful. We want to refactor things. We want to change things, and we don't even know what the original intention of the code was. So our only thing is to do test after, because there aren't tests there, and then re-implement bugs as we refactor, because we don't know what it really should do. We only know what it does do. And... This is, I don't know how long this project's been going on, Craig. Was it five years, six years? Mm, I don't know. A very long time. Not sure. Somewhere okay. that. And it's massive and has tons of code with little to no testing. And all of the testing, I was told by some of the original people on this project, was done test after because they didn't want to jump into the zealotness of the community of doing TDD. They thought the community was, I don't know if that's a word, too zealous. <laughs> I think it's so, called overzealous. Overzealous <laughs> about doing TDD. And it was like a pushback. And then they regretted that later. 
And, and so it, the tests really that are there me out when I see like these new guys going, you know, TDD is hard for them. They haven't practiced it enough. And so then they hear DHH say this and DHH is their hero because he came up with his fantastic idea of rails, which I will give him that. It's a fantastic idea. It's also built by a lot of other people now, too. It's not just DHH carrying the torch these days. And so they look up to this guy and then he comes in and says TDD sucks. Well, it's hard for them. So then they turn around and say, hey, DHH says TDD sucks. And then they stop. And then they kind of stopped testing altogether, too. So our code base, the tests that are there that were written after, they don't test what it does. They test how it does it. They're testing the implementation, not the specification. That's one of the problems with test after is you end up mirroring your code instead of testing what you need. So I got to tell you guys about a little thing that I uh, wanted to do with one of my students when I was still teaching. I suggested creating a whole bank of unit tests as a genetic algorithm fitness function. So don't write the code for what you wanted to do. Only write the test and then allow a genetic programming system to actually write the code that would pass the test. Sounds like Prologue. Probably would be really good in Prologue. But anyway, I thought that would be an excellent thing to do. And I'm pretty sure you couldn't do that the other way around, as Amos put earlier. Wow, I sound like a brilliant guy. I don't even know what I said earlier that I put it that way, but I'm pretty happy with Lee agreeing with me. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things he said is that TDD says, if you can test it more easily, it's better. Now, we know that that's not necessarily true, but there's a pretty strong correlation. And that's where I think he really threw out the baby with the bathwater. Wait, why, why is it better? I can tell you right now why I think it's better, but I want to hear what you guys think. Why do you think that testing first and having code that is more testable leads to better design? Uh, I'll go. This is Craig. It's probably going to be simpler because you're going, if it's hard to test, that's a pain point that you notice and you try to work on a better design that has fewer collaborators. So you're close to what I was thinking. Well, uh-huh. Go ahead, Tice. So, Amos, what I was going to say is I like to think of the test as a conversation with the code. And this idea of saying that if, much like Craig said, if the test is hard to implement or at that point, because we did talk a little bit about how tests can serve as documentation for the specifications, if the tests are hard to read and they don't make sense, you know, that's something you could actually look at. And I've used that in a retro to say, hey, who on the team understands what this test does? And if people say, like, there's two people say they do and everyone else is like, no way. That's an opportunity to improve. You know, everyone on the team should understand what the tests do. And if you write tests in that manner, it will force you to have a clean design. So you have a conversation with your code? You're getting to know it? You're getting to understand what it needs? Yes, you're probing it, to use my favorite word from John with last episode. So you can probe it later? Uh, Yes. Yeah? (laughs) All right, that brings up what I want to talk about. Wait, 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 wait. wait. We're not done with this. We're not done with this. It's Lee. Okay, so... For me, the TDD thing also gives you, it drives you towards certain patterns like factory models and injection. It just kind of increases that likelihood that you're going to use those patterns. And the fact that it's very easy to know when, you know, I've now got four injections into the constructor injections here. That's getting kind of high. Maybe I should split this class. I can now look for a refactor that goes with what I'm trying to do here. And there's likely a good chance that I can do that. And I wouldn't necessarily see that as quickly if I wasn't doing TDD. So everything that we just talked about there, except for maybe having a conversation with the code, is about decoupling your code. Like, that's a big problem in object-oriented programming, is making sure that your pieces are decoupled enough that they are reusable and easily changeable for the future. 
And even like the whole functional push is that everything is decoupled in functional programming. So maybe it shouldn't be surprising that the guy that wrote Active Record, which is a terribly, terribly coupled system, doesn't care about decoupling things. The infinite protocol? Yes, Aaron Patterson calls it that. I thought it was Aaron Patterson, but maybe it is Avdi. It was Avdi. I just got a, a confirmation from Avdi and Ernie Miller the other day that it was him. So to me, the most important thing about test first, test driven development is it helps me design from a different perspective. It helps me design from the user of the code, the client of the code, instead of the code itself. So instead of thinking about the code, I think about who's going to be using this code and what does their API look like. And when I get to think from that perspective, I end up with something that's easier to use. Amazing. The other thing that uh, we just went through an exercise, for example, where we had a architecture document, Tice, that in fact, I think Tice actually had a hand in writing for a, another St. Louis ago, company. Lee. Five yeah. years ago. Did yeah. you forget the word enterprise? It wasn't an enterprise document. This you was only like a six or seven page document, I think. It was a SOA design spec. Yeah, but it was fairly decent, fairly decent. It had stuff about how we should create certain service calls that these that this other company was going to need to call into our application. And we had some leeway as to how those were written, but they had some suggestions. And so we used those documents, including one that had to do with creating an SSO connection between the two systems that involved fairly complex encryption algorithms and models. And using just that document and TDD, we were able to create something that I am highly confident will actually work out of the box first time by mocking out their system. And I don't think we could have done that in any other method. And I think at that point, Lee, I mean, that's where, that almost, again, as Amos mentioned, that goes back to a lot of what we talked about with Llewellyn last week, um, talking about approval tests, where you're integrating with this other, call it a black box. If there's documentation or there's real system behavior, why not capture that easily with a way that you can work against it so you have a higher degree of confidence that your system does what it's supposed to do? And there are some, like, when you're doing APIs, there's some fantastic tools around that, too, to where you can have your test suite run and hit it. And then next time it won't go hit it, your test suite will like record it. That'll be in the picks. I have one I use pretty regularly that I like. But I think that it's it's interesting because to your point though, Lee, it's like, hey, I want to build software that integrates with this external service. Even that makes sense to do in a test driven form because then you could have some confidence that, you know, it's like a conformance test to make sure that the two pieces can talk to each other. And as soon as there's an issue, you know about it. You know, it's almost like, you know, a lot of the things there, um, if you've read The Goal by Eli Goldratt, we've talked about it before in the podcast, the novel all about the theory of constraints, they talk about a way to reduce defects and increase the throughput of a system is to insert quality controls at constraints. If you come to a constraint in a process, you want to do a quality control before you try to call that service to make sure that if you call the service, you have a high degree of confidence you're doing it accurately. So if you write a test to make sure before you call it, it's correct. I don't see why, again, that's a good practice. I would also compare it to like a manufacturing production line. Oh, right? More if stuff I, for the goal. Wonderful. Yeah. If you waited till you were completely done building a car before you tested that all the pieces were actually designed to spec and work the way they were supposed to individually, you'd never get a single car off the line. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, we should test first? I don't think we've ever plugged to the goal. Test the individual pieces, yeah. So that doesn't go against what you, you might test the individual piece after, right? 
Well, but you can't it's, test but it after it's, it's all put together. Yeah, well, or put it this way. Even if you test it it's after, tougher. you've put a broken part into the car, and then you've shipped the car. Oh, yeah, that's happened recently. And what, GM's having to recall how many cars? Because they did that very practice. So it makes sense to, you know, test all the piece parts, you know. I mean, this goes right back to the Agile testing pyramid, you know, by Lisa Crispin and Janet Gregory. It's like you want to have that nice layer of unit tests. If you're on a team, I mean, the easiest way to have a team that can consistently write unit tests is to write them first. And then you fill out the test pyramid with sufficient integration tests and then system tests and some GUI and UI tests at the top. And if you have that pyramid, you're able to release software and have confidence it works. So another point DHH made was that a lot of programmers want to be computer scientists. We want to measure so we can understand and improve. Um, and he said, but we're probably getting the wrong metrics. And he says that software is more like poetry than physics. Now, I think it's probably somewhere in between poetry and physics. I think it's a craft and a science. And a lot of it's not hard science. When you're talking about how we build things, that's not a hard science because it's too hard to control all the variables. So we don't have a lot of hard science on does TDD work. So I'm working on a blog response to DHH, and I've actually looked up what is the science on this. And so we actually do have some answers. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of answers. Let me see if I can find the uh, gist of it. Craig, the question I'd love to ask is, did he give an example of any of the metrics that he thinks are invalid or he has questions about? I don't, I don't recall any metrics that he... Right. I don't recall any uh, metrics that he set up a straw man to knock down for like he did the other things. Okay. So he wrote a blog post about a year ago, actually April 2012, so I guess two years, two years ago. ago. Talks about code-to-test ratio. If your code-to-test ratio is one to two, there's a smell. If it's one to three, it's a stink. If you're That's... spending more than a third of your time testing, you're doing it wrong. He also says, don't use Cucumber unless you live in a magic kingdom of non-programmers writing tests. And send me a <laughs> bottle of fairy dust if you're there. Don't integration test things that can be unit tested instead, is what he says. And number seven is don't force yourself to test first every controller model in view. His ratio is typically 20% test first, 80% test after. So I think we're at the beginnings of this at that point. See, my feedback there is those are some okay metrics, but I don't think they're framed appropriately. Because the metrics to be effective and really to be... This goes back to, I'm going to try this with my... Here we go again, Lee. It's time to talk about metrics. The metrics need to be framed in such a way that they help the team understand how you're generating value. So right there, I agreed, so, Jason. Very so, nice. So what I'm hearing is, okay, we're testing how many, we're measuring our test coverage. Okay. But how does that add value? All right, so, here you go. I've got answers for this. So what I would say is you need, like, just to close the idea, those metrics need to be correlated with something that has to do with generating value, such as releasing software to production. So if we increase our test coverage, does it decrease the amount of time it takes us to do a release to prod because we have automation? Or does it decrease our escaped bugs so we have less rework after we release a change? All right, here's what the research says. The research says that using TDD as opposed to test after costs us about 10 to 30% in short-term productivity, it reduces bugs by 30 to 90%, which is amazing, and decreases code complexity by about 30%. This seems to be a case like a lot of the Agile practices, like maybe pair pairing. programming. Yeah. That's the same thing. Also, I saw a stat that said pairing cost about 16% short-term productivity. But I think you improve the quality, and as CodeComplete has some evidence and research on when you improve the code quality, your long-term development costs go down. 
So I think you have a short-term cost, but a long-term gain. And that's, I think, what Agile is really all about. To me, it's what I call, this comes from, I guess I learned it best in that evil place I went to called Enterprise Architecture School. To t- <laughs> take a step back and look at the big picture. And just as Craig's saying, don't think about what you're going to do and who's going to support your next release to production. Think about who's going to support a maintenance release to production five years from now of your software. If you're developing software for an organization to generate business value or generate, generate value, generate money, you should want your software to be in prod in five years, and you should want it to still be generating value. You should do things now to sustain that and make that easier to do for whoever is doing that in the future, yourself or someone else. There's also something to, to keep in mind here that the, as with a lot of what the Agile practices do, they all kind of tie together. So this is also about sustainable pace, right? When a project is young, you can get away with writing code and not having that many tests because you don't have that much code. And you can go back and change it, and it's not that painful at that moment. But over time, you're going to get slower and slower and slower on that same code base if you don't have good test coverage. So to me, they all tie together. So Amos and I do a lot of uh, sort of Rails rescue projects, and that's exactly what we run into. Things have slowed down so much that it's painful to accomplish anything. So actually, I I love that term, Craig. For those that may not be familiar with that, could you define what that exactly that is a little bit more? Rails rescue projects are people that are using Rails. Um, That's our preferred stack, so I'm sure there's rescue projects for other stacks. But they've used it, and they've kind of made a mess, and it's kind of ground to a halt because they haven't been using good coding practices. And we have to come on and help them clean up the mess and try to improve their practices. So we kind of do two things. We do the Rails rescue and sort of an agile transformation or teach agile practices. So we help them improve the way they work so that we can slowly clean up the code base and stop making it worse. Not to turn this into another metrics episode, I'd love to know how you measure success quantitatively doing that. Poorly. Poorly, okay. Future episode, (laughs) future episode, okay. We talked about it a week or two ago uh, on the podcast that I have trouble figuring out what metrics to yeah. start recording. Yeah, we got into that. I'm, I'm curious because there are a couple things you could use to do a baseline and then do goals, but we'll save that for a future discussion. I mean, we do the obvious metrics. Yeah, we actually do a happiness metric, which our team's actually down on right now, so that's not helpful. <laughs> we do story points, of course, and that's generally not been helpful. up since we started. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've been up, but yeah, true. We spend a lot of time giving them points, but in general, I think... <laughs> One of the things is, you know, it's it's fairly subjective. You know, it feels like we're doing better. Sometimes Sounds that's like a, all you get. That was a nervous laugh there, Craig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I would ask the question, when you're in a project like that, and I know a couple people, I guess, in addition to you guys that do that kind of work. One of the things, and actually, I love the way it was described in a, an article that was published about Southwest Airlines years ago. And they talked about how sometimes the pilot lets go of the controls and really sees if the co-pilot can fly the plane. You know, it's almost that opportunity to learn to fail. Do you ever do that in engagement like that, where you disengage with your client for a short period of time and actually use that to kind of generate your upcoming improvement activities because you see where they struggle after you disengage? It's called vacation. Okay. Every time you take a break for a couple days, you don't even have to be gone very long. You can come back and see the behavior change while you're not there. There have been a lot of studies on that actually too, where if you're being watched, 
you actually have improvement just from being watched. Yeah, that was John's discussion a few episodes ago about turning the bright lights on. Oh, that's right. Yep. So you automatically see how far back they're going to slip when you walk away. Yeah. And they always do. Everybody always does. Even myself. If people aren't watching me, I do slip back. If I'm working on a project that I'm only going to be the only one using it, I will sometimes not do TDD. But whenever <gasps> I'm working with a group of oh people, I am like on it. <laughs> you got to do it, TDD. So, but Amos, doesn't that make you a hypocrite? You like don't hold yourself to your own standards that you hold your colleagues to? I do when I'm working with colleagues. My little script that I write just to screw around? No, I'm probably not going to write any tests with it. I'm not working with anybody, and I am always kicking myself in the butt later whenever I have to go back and maintain that. Okay. So, so, you so know, I'm only hurting me. So you don't need the high level of confidence when you're writing code for just yourself. Right. Well, Sometimes. That's a personal view. Well, when my projects start to grow, then I'm like, okay, maybe I should. But usually I don't have a lot of projects that are just me anyway. I'm sort of like Amos, and if it's just a short little hack that I don't care about that much, then I probably am not going to write tests. But if I think it's going to grow to any significant size or usage, then I'm going to write tests. I know that uh, when we do spikes, for example, spikes, we don't insist that people do TDD, but then the spikes get thrown out. I mean, we're not allowed to put spike code in production. We hope. <laughs> I know at least on my teams, we've been pretty staunch about it. So they will have the spike code there for reference, but they still have to TDD it when they write the production version. Yeah, right now I'm working on a project for a customer, and I just spike something out to show them. But now they're using the spike that I showed them. Uh. I'm actually like fixing the real code. So I'm just going to swap it out from underneath them and... Hopefully the API that they're using doesn't change because it's a command line application. I know inevitably whenever we do that, the production code looks so much cleaner and better than the spike code ever did. Yeah, because Do you have any hard metrics on that? Not any hard metrics. I've just I'm seen just, it over and over that, again. That's just how I felt about Tyson's question earlier about how do you know when you're at that point. It, again, it's when I look at the code, I feel good about it. Whenever I'm required to change the code, I'm not scared to touch it. Those are the metrics. Like, when can I go touch a subsystem of this and not feel like I'm just going to destroy the entire thing? So actually, Lee, if I can speak, or Lee and Amos, if I can speak to that, that is actually really easy to measure. And it is a combination of a little bit of a qualitative metric with a quantitative metric. And that is that you need to go through and you need to basically try to identify stories where, you know, if you're ever in a planning meeting and the team's like, hey, we want to spike on this. And sometimes you say no, or the team says no, and you don't spike on it and you implement it. Keep track of that. That's valuable data. And then what you do is you look at two things, cycle time of implementing the story, and then also escape bugs of the story or, you know, changes or cards backwards on the comma board, some type of a quantitative measure about the stories. What you'll find nine out of 10 times is that the total time for a spike and then an implementation of the story with tests after the spike, it may be slightly more than just doing it kind of with the spike integrated as part of the story. But as Lee said, you'll get a much higher quality output because you'll take all that learning and you'll apply it to write good code. So, Craig, did you want to kind of close us out with some happy notes? So, THH did have some positive things in his talk that I thought were valuable. And the whole point was sort of the question, the value of the things that we do. I think that's a good thing to take a look at what we're doing and see if it has value. 
I think he's probably wrong on this one, and I don't know that he really understood the value he was supposed to be getting from it. One of the other things he says is that we're bad at the science part of computer science. We don't know what metrics to record, and we're really bad at using them to help us improve. And a lot of that's because, as far as processes go, there's way too many variables to control. He talked about better code being defined as code with more clarity. I think that's really important. And he said, how do we get better at coding, at writing more code with more clarity? And he said, read a lot of code, write a lot of code, rewrite a lot of code. And he said, forget about patterns for a while, which I kind of agree with. They'll come out, and newbies tend to overuse patterns. And then he said, forget about TDD, which that's the part I would disagree with. But there, there were good things in his talk, but the big point, I think, was definitely misguided. The one thing that I can say is, even though we disagree with that point, it's good that we're still taking steps back and questioning everything that we do, whether it's TDD or not. Keep questioning it. Keep questioning its value because you'll only push yourself further. Well, I would like to personally thank DHH for giving us a fantastic topic to talk about and watching the uproar around the entire community because I'm, I'm sure that he enjoys watching that too. This week's Hottest Picks. All right, so I guess we'll go with our picks today. Craig, what are your picks? Uh, my first pick is Pocket. I believe the URL is getpocket.com. It saves articles for reading later. It used to be called readitlater.com. I don't use it just for reading articles, but for finding articles, especially if I'm going to use them as a pick later. My next one is called speaking.io. Some great tips on public speaking at user groups and conferences. He updates it every once in a while. I do not think he has the tip to be controversial, which is actually a pretty good tip. And I'm working on a blog response to DHH called TDD is Alive and Well on my blog, blog.boochtech.com. And I should have that done uh, sometime around when this episode comes out. Tice, how about you? Those are good picks, Craig. I didn't mean to move past you so quickly. Or as Tice always tells me, a little too tight, Amos. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so I have a couple DHH-inspired picks. First and foremost, that was a book that actually uh, Jason Fried wrote with some thoughts from DHH. It was called Rework, and it's a collection of essays. It's a quick read. Most of the essays are like two or three pages. They're witty. They're fun. An insightful way to run an organization. If you haven't read it, it's out there. Some of my favorites are like long lists don't get done, so you should have a long list of things to do because what's most important is what's on the top. Is it fried or freed? It's freed. My bad. So another great thing, as we talk about tools, and I've used this recently, uh, coaching teams that have problems sending too much email. And that would be the wonderful uh, tool brought to us by 37signals called Basecamp. Great way to, even if you use email, it takes all the email that a team is sending, it puts it into the way it's aggregated on the web. There are no metrics for it. It promotes transparent communication. So it's, again, really helpful if you have a distributed team that is constantly pinging back and forth by simply encouraging them to use Basecamp for that same communication. It helps to put everyone on the same page. Last but certainly not least, I'll put a plug out there for uh, Agile Games 2014, conference I'm helping plan this year. And the cool thing going on now is we've actually got some really good games that have been submitted to our call for games from the community and we're going to feature those on the second day of the conference so come check that out and see kind of what some up-and-coming ideas are to help improve the agile games movement going forward i heard a dirty little secret at that conference that yours truly might be hosting some nightly entertainment while we're there that's 
actually in the works. This Agile Life is going to make an appearance. I believe Mr. Sextro is going to take a trip to Boston. And I believe Mr. Lee or Dr. Lee might be joining us. And, of course, I would hope Amos and Craig, you guys would join us somehow online or we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll be there. So, What's the date of that? It's in June. So our evening thing live at the Agile Games Conference will be Monday, June 2nd, 2014. And that will be live there. We still haven't figured out if it's going to be live on the Internet but it will be live for people at the conference to uh, come and meet and mingle and probe the people from this side of life to uh, ask questions and learn more. I'll skip the probing, please. Yeah. Okay. John and I <laughs> will pass. probe each other. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I can finish this episode. I think that's our show title. <laughs> oh, Those are right. my picks, Amos. I'm done. <laughs> Those are fantastic. And Lee, Lee, what picks do you have for us this evening? Well, I actually have some sites that I can't really give the names of the sites because they're basically just people's blogs. They're pretty long URLs, but they'll be in the show notes. And these are funny source code comments. Let me read just one of them to you that I really liked. Okay, before you read the following code, know what I am trying to do. I need to get the list of child categories from the root node so that the root node didn't appear in the selection box. But for some stupid blanking reason, the stupid blanking DBA won't let me access the items using indices, and I instead have to use their stupid blanking iterator implementation. So there. <laughs> wow, that's like a gem for your coach and your architect to have a love fest. I wonder if they're still using that implementation below that giant comment. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> it doesn't look like it. <laughs> it's pretty simple code. <laughs> Do you have any other picks for us tonight, Lee? That was it. Just a couple of sites that I found pretty funny. Nice. So I think Lee has become our go-to joke man. Um, I only have one pick for tonight, and I alluded to it earlier, is there's a gem for Ruby that's called VCR. And it will record remote API calls for later for your tests um, so that your tests don't have to continue to hit that remote API. And you can tell it to hit it again later and replace those in case their API changes so you can just update all of your tests very quickly. So you save them to a cassette and then you load the cassette to replay them. (laughs) I wonder how long we can have this before new programmers coming in don't know what it means. I think uh, next week. (laughs) (laughs) I did see a thing at the store saying that people that were born in like 93 could drink and it just made me feel really old. Uh, I just came from a restaurant and saw that on their thing. I was married in 93. So that was... Jesus, you're old. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amos. (laughs) Well, I guess that's all we have time for today. Check us out on thisagilelife.com. These show notes and all of our past episodes are available there. Thanks for listening and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.